Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England episode 255 in the Spanish Century. Before I start on that, let me excite you all beyond the possibility of containment with news of History in Technicolor, the shiny new podcast on history films by Wolf and me. We now have four episodes, the latest being a bun fight about a man for all seasons and the bold assertion by one of the two of us that theatre is a far superior art form. <laughs> How we laughed. Find out about Tom, Harry, Meg, Dick and the gang in A Man for All Seasons, revel in the glories of Master and Commander, discover the mysteries of Zodiac, and soar with the music of Wolfie. Next up, you'll be able to delight at the satire of the Charge of the Light Brigade, which we have decided to release today, actually, so that we can get out of sync with the things that made England. Charge is a delightfully nutty protest film about the Crimean War, which gets more interesting every time I think about it, though can't claim it should have won any Oscars. Not just that, you also get to vote on each film and comment with everyone on the History of England Facebook site. You can find History in Technicolor on all good podcatchers. Back to European history, the last of three. Last week we covered the French religious wars and the story of the Huguenots. Of course, the French Huguenots were not the only story of religious war and rebellion in the 16th century. We have a particularly stirring story yet to come, greatest of them all maybe. But, to put that in proper context, we should consider the most powerful man in the Western world, Philip II of Spain, and the country and empire that made him so. Philip was brought up by his mother Isabella of Spain and was 31 when his father, Charles V, abdicated. He was a great lover and patron of the arts, and he possessed a religious faith onto which was bracketed an unshakable belief in the divine will. He had the humanist-based education of his age, along with languages. He had a rather temporary passion for the guitar, which he probably lost a bit like me when he realised that he was rubbish despite billions of hours of practice, and when finally his wife told him to throw the blessed thing away or she'd burn it. Maybe. Philip was reported to be a good-looking man, courteous and gracious. He was conscientious in the extreme, but despite the size of his job, he was unfortunately a very poor delegator. So at the height of his reign, deep in the massive palace of El Escorial, he worked late into the night in his office, everything coming across his desk to be reviewed and considered, slowing decision-making to a crawl. He held a high sense of his and his dynasty's honour, and this would be a powerful motivator for him. So, in 1588, for example, he would launch the armada against England, despite knowing that he should take more time to prepare. But he felt his reputation would suffer if he did, and so pride clouded judgment. Equally strongly, he felt himself to be the defender of the Catholic faith. Pride, dynasty, religion, obsessive control. Together, 
Philip would allow these four things to impoverish his country and destroy Spanish hegemony despite the incredible wealth of his empire in both the New World and the Old. It's also worth noting that it's quite difficult to evaluate both Philip and Spain during the century. There is such a lot of reputation and propaganda to work your way through first, especially if you're English. Spaniards complain, with some justice, of a black legend, a tendency to interpret Spanish history in the most negative possible way, to describe their colonial history as exceptionally brutal, their defence of Catholic religion as fanatical, and everyone expects a Spanish Inquisition. While the English tend to get blamed for this, it was a tradition that probably started in Italy. Rather remarkably, Pope Pius IV in 1555 described the Spaniards as heretics, schismatics, accursed of God, the offspring of Jews and Moranos, the very scum of the earth, which is bizarre given the debt his church would owe to Spanish military and financial support and loyalty. But may owe something to his irritation that even Philip would seek to exercise control of the church in Spain. Philip may have been a staunch champion of Catholicism, but he was no fool. He was quite bright enough to keep a firm control of the church in Spain rather than allow the Pope to have free reign. Another tradition has Germany as the origin of the black legend driven by religious conflict. But wherever it started, from the later 16th century, a wave of Protestant propaganda from England and the Netherlands would seize on Spain's colonial history, lit by the fires, of course, of religious and political opposition. Now, I suspect that the pendulum has swung away rather over the last 50 years or so as the historiography of the British Empire in particular has shifted, and it's now Britain that is rather more in the firing line, but Spain's history is still there to be dealt with. One of the reasons for writing these European episodes then is to make sure that we see England's history in proper context. The same rigour must be applied to Spain. Spanish history must be seen in the context of the time when the drivers and attitudes all over Europe had far more in common than they differed. In episode 209 on exploration some time ago, I think we covered the early years of Spanish and Portuguese expansion overseas. And the story of the 16th century is one of the continuing growth of those colonial empires. So here I must be really, really disciplined or will seriously disappear down a rabbit hole. But briefly, you might remember the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, in which the Pope had carved the world up between Spain and Portugal based on a line of latitude in the West. And then, of course, inconveniently, the likes of de Gama went all the way around the world the other way. <sighs> So in 1529, they had to create a line in the east as well. In the west, Cuba and the islands of the Caribbean came first with Columbus's discovery. By 1520s, Cortes had defeated the Aztec Empire in Central America. By 1530s, Pizarro had done the same in Peru to the Incan Empire and gradually between 1531 and 1572, all of Peru, for example, was brought under the Spanish crown. The Portuguese similarly developed their possessions in Brazil. In the east, the Spanish were centred on the Philippines and Manila became their great trading base from which to trade with China and Japan. The situation in the east, of course, was very different to the west, with societies in China and Japan supremely indifferent to the goods the backwards Europeans had to offer them in trade. But there was one commodity they did value that Europe could provide, silver and gold. Actually, that's two commodities but you know what I mean. 
And with the stream of bullion coming from South America, merchants were able to make incredible profits by bringing home spices to Europe. From 1540, the Lords of Japan allowed the Portuguese access to trade with Japan for the very first time. By the 1560s, part of the Spanish silver fleet would sail direct to Manila to fund Spanish trade in the East. In China, traders were helped by the fact that the relative value of silver and gold were very different there from everywhere else, so the Chinese valued silver far more highly than gold. And for a while, it was possible to make a profit simply by selling silver and buying gold, until the Chinese got wise to it. So, the later 16th century then, was much about the continuing growth and expansion of these Spanish and Portuguese empires. In the territories of South and Central America, all native inhabitants were declared by the Spanish crown to have equal legal status. There's no doubt, of course, that the crown saw colonisation as a great opportunity, especially of exploiting the mining of silver, but also from wider economic output. So the way they tackled this was the encomienda system, which was modelled on that first established in the Caribbean. So what this did was to give rights over the labour of specific groups of native people to specific conquistadores. Encomenderos were to ensure that the native people were given instruction in the Christian faith and in the Spanish language and protect them, while natives in return would provide tributes in the form of metals or agricultural produce. Whatever the intentions, the results were disastrous. There was probably European diseases which caused the most horror, childhood diseases in particular. The numbers are constantly and hotly debated, but usually they're dramatic. Estimates in Mexico, for example, vary. So at one end, a fall in native population from 27 million in 1500 to 1 million in 1600 is estimated. But at the other end of the estimates, especially with DNA evidence now coming on board, population decline has been estimated to be as low as 25%. I say as low as, you know what I mean, in comparison to the higher estimates. In Peru, the native population is said to have fallen from between 9 and 16 million in 1500 to around 500,000 in 1620. Against these falls, dramatic even at the lowest end, the number of Spaniards and Portuguese who emigrated to the New World was relatively small, maybe about 200,000, and they were overwhelmingly male. As a result, although initially discouraged, there was a large amount of mixing between populations. The terrible story of the native South American is part of a well-known narrative, and the reason that it is so well known is partly because there were some Spaniards who tried to highlight what was going on and stop it, notably Bartolomé de la Cazas, who bravely and loudly fought for the rights of the native people. And there were attempts by the Crown to prevent enslavement and to limit the rights of the encomaderos to lifetime, for example, so that they could maintain the Crown's direct authority and ability to protect the natives. But it's not clear this material affected the native conditions positively. The lure of profit was too great, or the distance to the mother country too far. Nor is it clear that anyway, Las Cathas won his argument even in theory at the time. So there was a very famous debate called the Valladolid debate in 1550 to 1551, which was supposed to try and identify if natives were capable of self-government. And in no way is it clear that that debate went Las Cathas' way. The catastrophic population falls meant that by the mid-15th century and onwards, native labour simply disappeared. Wherever they could, locals just ran away when faced with the prospect of working in places like the Potosi mines. 
And so, the Spanish and Portuguese found themselves in desperate need of labour. This, combined with the growth of the sugar industry, would have appalling consequences. The sugarcane was a native of the South Pacific. It was taken to India in ancient times, then to China and then to the Mediterranean. Crete, Sicily and Cyprus all had the right kind of warm, wet climate for growing sugar and so it was grown there. And then also the Atlantic islands off the coast of Africa were perfect. And there, sugar industries were established. Those earliest sugar plantations in Europe and Africa were worked by both free and slave workers from many different ethnic groups. But by the 1480s, the workers in many sugar plantations, especially those on the Atlantic islands, were all black African slaves. Sugar needs expensive refining machinery and it needs large numbers of workers to cut the cane. And so it was labour intensive and it tended very strongly to large-scale plantations since small producers simply couldn't turn a profit. The potential for sugar production in the Americas was identified very early. Columbus established production in 1515 in what is now the Dominican Republic and then it went on to Cuba and then Jamaica in the 1520s. Parts of Brazil were absolutely ideal. And by 1600, Brazil was Europe's largest source of sugar. When the Spanish and Portuguese producers were faced with the problem they just couldn't find these workers they needed, the solution illustrated by those Atlantic islands presented itself to them. And so in 1513, the Spanish crown formally licensed the Portuguese to transport slaves to the Spanish colonies. But under pressure of the demand, regulation began to break down. So by 1600, as many as 200,000 Africans had been forced into slavery and shipped across the Atlantic. And in just another further 50 years, by 1650, predominantly Portuguese ships had shipped maybe 800,000. This is, of course, an enormous number. But it is worth remembering just for a moment that it's a fraction of the millions that would be shipped by the English and British in the 18th century as the size of the sugar trade grew and the British took over. It would take some time for this to happen, later in the 17th century, but the first signs of English involvement are there this early. Both Hawkins and Drake tried mightily hard at various times during Elizabeth's reign to take a piece of the slave trade away. At some point, I will need to do a fuller episode on the Atlantic slave trade, of course, but now is not that time. But I talk about colonisation and Atlantic trade here for a few reasons. The first is to note that despite its constant disunity at home, Europeans were remarkably consistent and united in their attitudes to the new worlds they had uncovered in both West and East. This attitude was basically one of European superiority. Las Cather's writing and his courage in fighting the cause of native Southern Americans actually had an unfortunate side effect. Because even in his works, the natives are presented as harmless and passive. And it encouraged the development of a stereotype, in the West at least, of the simple, undeveloped savage. So, take the work of the delightfully ahead of his time and open-minded French philosopher Montaigne. While he was arguing the case against the brutality of the colonisers, he still managed to ignore all the richness, sophistication, bravery and culture of the local nations. And he built a picture of simple innocence, such as, for the wonder of the glistening of a looking-glass or of a plain knife, would have changed or given inestimable riches in gold. Of course, black slavery massively encouraged and embedded this sense of racial superiority. 
You might wonder how this could be transferred to the East, where the relationship was so different. In the 16th century in particular, Europeans had to fight hard to gain any attention and the right to trade. And it is true that there was more respect shown for the Chinese and Japanese, so there's a tract entitled The Natural and Moral History of the East and West Indies, which was written by a Spanish Jesuit theologian, José de Acosta, written sometime before 1600. He helpfully arranged world cultures into a sort of hierarchy, with the Europeans, Chinese and Japanese at the top, Aztecs and Incas in the middle, and Africans and other people he described as savages at the bottom. Nonetheless, belief in cultural superiority and the mission to impose Christianity throughout the world was an almost universally held European belief from the mid-16th century onwards. It also must partly explain how so many European societies and individuals became involved and complicit with slavery. Slavery was not invented by the Spanish, Portuguese, English, Islam or whoever. It had, of course, been around in ancient and traditional societies. The Islamic and North African slave trade, for example, may well have put over a million into slavery. Nonetheless, even doing our best to adjust for different values of different ages, to judge people by the standards of their own day, all those good things, it still seems incredible to us that anyone could cram all those people into tiny, sunless holds where a third of them would probably die before they arrived. And the lure of profit doesn't seem quite enough. The fact that most accepted slavery as just a part of the way of things still seems insufficient to explain it. So maybe there were just some bad people, a vast number of people were just too remote from the brutality and actuality of the process to appreciate what was going on, but part of it must have been that black Africans simply became viewed by Europeans as in some way less than human. A second point then that I wanted to make is the economic impact of all of this. It's not just about pounds, shillings and pence, of course. There was the famous Colombian Exchange, as it was called, with the arrival in Europe of exotic new products that would have such an impact on economics, trade, culture. The potato from 1536. By 1600, coffee and chocolate was becoming widespread. Tobacco started as snuff in France, and so on. I am told that about 30% of what we eat and drink in the West originated in the Americas. I have no idea, I've not been counting, so I'll leave that with you. But if we start with the potato, it's up in the 95 to 96 percentages for me personally. It's difficult to get through the day without a potato, I personally find. But what I should focus on is the economic impact of a system that had become thoroughly reliant on interconnected world systems. The black ship taking silver to the Philippines to bring spices back to Europe and then wine and manufactured goods to the colonies. Slaves carried from Africa to the Americas, sugar and other goods to the Netherlands to produce bullion to pay the debt of the Spanish crown. It's generally agreed that this very substantial trade made Spain by 1600 the most powerful country in Europe. What is very less clear is how much genuine benefit it brought Spain and how well she deployed and managed her newfound riches. It's also unclear how much impact this influx of gold and silver from the New World had in Europe. But look, let's try and have a hack. You would not forgive me if I did not. Well, actually you might be quite relieved, but I would not forgive myself. As far as the Spanish crown was concerned then, she took one-fifth of all American bullion produced by her empire and colonies in addition to all those traditional taxes and customs dues that she took anyway. 
So during the course of the second half of the 16th century, between 1550 and 1600, the royal fifth increased from 250,000 ducats all the way up to 2 million ducats. So that's four times larger. And while this was going on, her extraordinary revenue doubled and her normal revenue failed to even keep up with inflation. Now, I have no way of translating those figures into the incomes of other countries. The points you might take, however, from these figures are these. Firstly, the income from economies was rising and rising fast. Unsurprising fact number one, I hear you say, Professor of the Bleeding Obvious. Secondly, it's rising, while the rest of Spanish revenue, normal revenue that is, is rather stagnant, reflecting the slightly unhealthy bias that all this bullion produced as Spain overstretched her normal resources and economy. Finally, although it's difficult to translate, historians agree that Spain's wealth was extraordinary, exceptional, and with the brief union between the Portuguese and Spanish crowns in 1580, it was boosted even further. Through whatever crises, the Spanish currency was still the European standard by the end of the century, as far as quality was concerned, and it remained so into the 17th century. And the bullion from the colonies was remarkably reliable income. Every year, the treasure fleets brought the riches of the Americas into Seville in the form of bullion. I am sure a fair proportion of my youth was spent reading about Drake and Hawkins hunting down the fabulous wealth of the Spanish treasure fleets. And yet, despite all that fame and effort and all the rest of it, they never managed it. Nor did almost anyone else, by the way. The Dutch managed it once in 1628. So this enormous inflow of money financed massive and conspicuous building in Spain and nobility, newly enriched by service to the crown, flaunted its wealth. And it produced an army that was the envy of Europe, not just in its size, but in its peerless quality. And yet for some reason, as much as Spain earned, the more their financial problems seemed to multiply. In 1559, for example, new onto the Spanish throne, his dad, not long dead, Philip it faced an invasion from an Islamic army from North Africa. It was crucial that he raise a fleet to combat this threat. But his revenues that year amounted to about 1.5 million ducats, which sounds great, but sadly he needed 4.2 million for defence and servicing his debt alone. His total debt stood at 25 million ducats. Now Mr Micawber might have said annual income 1.5 million ducats, annual expenditure 4.2 million ducats, Islamic invasion pending, result misery. Now he managed all of this by borrowing, but he'd done quite a lot of that already. In fact, the entire Spanish system relied very heavily on bankers to make it work. The bullion hardly touched the sides of Philip's pockets. I have an image of the stately and magnificent merchant ships drawing into the bustling port of Seville, the crowds cheering their annual arrival. I imagine great carts of loaded up with bullion and goodies on the decks, and I imagine them being loaded straight into the waiting ships and swept away to foreign bankers from Germany, Genoa, Antwerp, Portugal, leaving Philip holding half a crown and a ducky poker. An exaggeration, but you know, that's the basic picture, without the ducky poker, obviously. In 1556, when Philip II parked his backside on the chair of state for the first time, he found that his revenues were all spoken for all the way up to 1561, five years hence. Now I know what you're going to say. That's OK. Income's going up. Easy peasy. But of course, Philip simply kept upping his outgoings and commitments. Between 1572 and 1576, when he was fighting both the Dutch and the Ottomans, he was spending double his annual income. 
a situation which should have led Mr Micawber to reach for the Valium. By the 1660s, 100 years later, crown debt in Spain was 10 to 15 years of income and servicing the debt was 70% of annual income. Without wanting to be overly critical again, Philip's dynastic ambitions, his unbreakable pride and belief in his and his crown's reputation and his determination to make almost any commitment to enforce universal Catholicism would once again leave his country impoverished, specifically Castile and they would miss the opportunity to genuinely transform its economy. There was too much money, essentially. In 1600, one Spaniard wrote, What makes Spain poor is her wealth. Philip also faced a problem common to all Europeans, the green-eyed inflation monster. Grain prices, for example, rose dramatically and consistently throughout Europe. By the end of the century, compared to the start of the century, Grain prices in Germany were two and a half times higher, in Austria, three times higher. They were four times higher in the Netherlands, Spain, England and Poland, and they were six times higher in France. Now remember, inflation was unknown. And while that was all happening, population was also going potty. I'll put a chart of numbers onto the website, but bear in mind we're still in an era of extremely dodgy numbers, so there's quite a range. But by one measure, Europe's population grew by 30% over the century, from 82 to 107 million. Together, this increased the pressure on land, led to a flood of landless and jobless poor and depressed wages. Another way of looking at the consequences of these two economic trends is to think about what poorer people could buy with the sweat of their brow alone, remembering that for many, the breadline was never far away, particularly a simple farm labourer. So in 1480, in the south of France, a farm labourer could expect to earn the equivalent of 468 litres of wheat a year. By the end of the 16th century, the same labourer could earn barely the equivalent of 150 litres. That would have had our labourer looking up at the breadline with no more than fond memories. No one seems quite sure what caused this price inflation, The traditional theory was the inflow of extra bullion into Europe from the New World cheapened the commodity, increased the availability of money and reduced its value. And it's been noted that silver production within Europe increased at the same time. So we're talking about a double whammy. I was interested to note that the annual inflow of silver from the New World did not exceed the annual production of European silver mines until 1570, which was not what I was expecting. Other analysts, though, have focused more on the rising population and land hunger as a spur for inflation. Others have highlighted the actions of governments, such as the debasement of the coinage in England. But whatever the cause, the results were great poverty. By 1600, three quarters of a poor family's income went on food. Itinerant beggars proliferated and disturbed the order of medieval Europe, Attitudes towards these itinerant poor seem to have been quite similar all over Europe, and throughout Europe they grew harsher. Cities passed laws prohibiting begging, many opened workhouses where able-bodied poor were put to work at simple tasks, such as spinning wool or beating hemp. Both Protestant and Catholic cities tried to centralise and consolidate the dispensation of charity. They tried to control begging and put everyone who could to work. The same point again. They did all this because that was the way the world was supposed to work. They had no economic theory to understand what was happening to them. This growth in population was accompanied by a growth in the cities. 
So at the start of the century, there were five super cities of 100,000 or more people. By the end of the century, this had grown to 14. So almost three times more. The likes of Paris, Bruges, Milan and Venice were joined by many whose growth was driven by international trade, cities such as Amsterdam, Antwerp, Seville, Lisbon and London. The vast majority of people in Europe, maybe 89%, still lived in the countryside, but the percentages were now changing, and the influence of cities on trade was, of course, out of all proportion to their relative size. There is great disagreement about the consequences of all these economic changes, which I have brutally summarised. Some have seen the start of a capitalist society and economy, though in fact, centralised manufacturing, rather than medieval putting out or cottage industry models, were rare. But in some places, northern Italy, the Netherlands, London, Paris, just a few other places, wealth increasingly came from trade and manufacturing production rather than land. To economic change, there was a wide variety of social response. In England and France, social mobility increased. In Central and Eastern Europe, it was absolutely the opposite. Here, the nobility took action to protect their ancient way of life and privilege by actually reimposing serfdom on a recently free peasantry, depressing productivity rather than leading to greater wealth. All horribly summarised, I'm sorry, and possibly confusing so. The overall picture you might keep in your head is one of economic growth, but in such an inflexible economic system, that growth was insufficient to absorb the extra population leading to great poverty and misery for many. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This then was the background in which Imperial Spain moved and led. Philip II was notably determined, as we said, not to tolerate religious heterodoxy, and the experience of the chaos in France that was unfolding in front of him would have done absolutely zip to persuade him that he was wrong in that. And meanwhile, at the same time, he demanded exactly the same obedience in politics, demanding an unswerving loyalty to the Spanish nation under its Catholic monarch. By Spain, as far as Philip was concerned, that essentially meant Castile. The result of Philip's approach was polarisation. So, for example, the dominance of Castile within Spain meant that the Kingdom of Aragon was to rebel in 1591. The focus on Catholicism meant that opponents of Spain became opponents of Catholicism, and opponents of Catholicism became opponents of Spain. And nowhere was that more true than in the Low Countries, more specifically in the Netherlands. The Netherlands were vulnerable to Calvinism. They were independent-minded cities, there were high levels of trade, a consistent stream of migrants and traders moving in and out, bringing ideas with them. Mindful of those dangers... Philip instituted a much-needed church reform, specifically reforming the bishoprics in 1559 and increasing the number of bishops in the Low Countries up to 18, and he thoughtfully provided two inquisitors within each bishopric to lead and manage the pursuit of heresy. As the new bishops started their work, they managed to trample on both religious and secular sensitivities. 
Not only was this not the broad, flexible Catholic religion people were used to, the bishops also violated secular liberties, such as the right of citizens to be tried in a local court, just for example. Now, from Philip's point of view, this was all dandy. It was a bog-off, two for the price of one, strengthening central and political power while rooting out heresy. What's not to like? In 1562 alone, there were some 600 prosecutions for heresy. Hang out the bunting. But from a local point of view, of course, it meant that a broad coalition emerged against Philip. Both the emerging Protestant communities and Catholics could make common cause because they could unite over their political grievances and even Catholics disliked the new, harder, confessional lines produced by the Council of Trent. So, thoroughly peeved, in 1566 a group of 250 nobles came to the court of Philip's regent in the Netherlands, Margaret of Parma, and they brought with them a petition and a list of grievances. Margaret was understandably worried at the numbers of these nobles, but one of her advisers sneeringly referred to them as being nobodies, merely beggars. It was a name that would stick. The dissidents would take pride in the name of beggar, and it would become a powerful rallying cry throughout the following revolt. Through the 1560s, then, attitudes on both sides hardened. In 1566, as Calvinism began to take hold of the country, there was a wave of iconoclasm that demonstrated to Philip that he was absolutely on the money. This lot needed to be taught a lesson and needed to be sorted out right now. Enter stage left, the villain, twiddling wax moustaches and rolling his eyes at the audience, the Duke of Alba, the Iron Duke. These troubles must be ended by force of arms without any use of pardon, mildness, negotiation or talks until everything has been flattened. Then will be the right time for negotiation. Right. With 10,000 soldiers at his back, the Duke, Spain's most successful general, sought to extinguish the revolt. The infamous Council of Blood carried out trials for heresy on an industrial scale. The more conservative numbers have it that Protestants suffered from 1,400 convictions for heresy, with 1,000 of those ending in execution. And by the time the Council was wound up, 12,000 cases were still undecided, all of those people presumably living in fear of their lives. Enter William of Orange, William the Silent, around whom resistance gathered. The very same William who had lent his arm to Emperor Charles V when he abdicated. Actually, William the Silent was remarkably unsuccessful in the fight against Alba, and maybe given the comparative resources and Alba's reputation, that's a bit unsurprising. But he did that most crucial of things, he survived. He survived to fight on, even as the fires of revolt burnt low, to be all but extinguished. By 1571, Alba had done so well that he was even managing to make the Dutch pay for their own repression with the infamous tenth penny, extracting eight million florins compared to the one million florins that he was sent from Spain. Cool. In the process, though, a critical relationship had been forged. While for most Dutch... The revolt was about freedom from political tyranny. Philip's fierce Catholicism forced all Netherlanders to equate Catholicism with tyranny and equate Protestantism with the fight for freedom, in exactly the same way that in reverse the Irish would view the English. But for the moment, that was pretty academic anyway, because the Dutch revolt was all over, squished, knackered. In April 1572, a desperate group of ships approached the Dutch harbour of Brill, 
calling themselves the Sea Beggars. Under pressure from Philip's diplomacy, Elizabeth of England had refused to admit them to English ports, and now they had no home. To their astonishment, they found Brill undefended by Spanish troops. They looked at each other and decided that, hey, wherever I lay my hat, that can be my home, and so it was. A few days later, they tried exactly the same thing at another town, and would you Adam and Eve it, the same tactic worked there as well. The fall of the two towns lit a fire in the Netherlands for a second time, and town after town declared once more for the beggars, and the Dutch revolt was back in town. The euphoria didn't long survive the Iron Duke's response. Town after town fell right back into Spanish hands. In this, they were inspired, if that's the right word, by Alba's brutal treatment of the towns in his way. So Mechelen, for example, was sacked over three days. After seven months' siege, Harlem was finally forced to surrender and its entire garrison was butchered. But all this resistance slowed Alba down and other cities held out like Leiden and Alkmaar. By the end of 1573, Alba had fallen to court intrigues and he had been replaced and the revolt was still alive. It had survived him. Now, I am told there is an expression in Spanish when there's something really difficult to do. Let's say I have a bug on the website. I might wearily sigh to my other half that, oh Lord, it's as hard as putting a pikeman into Flanders. Not sure if that's really an expression, but that's what I was told by that bloke in the pub. If so, it reflects the nightmare that was the Spanish road as it became known. The massively long supply chain all the way from Spain through the empire to the Low Countries. Its very existence, the land route, reflected that by this time the Spanish could claim no automatic naval superiority against the Dutch and English, and it was draining Spain of blood and of money. Despite heavier and heavier taxation, and despite the Spanish road, most Spanish troops in the Netherlands were constantly unpaid. In 1576, the army was at the end of its tether, and it simply decided to take what it was owed. The Spanish fury of Antwerp may have claimed as many as 17,000 lives as the army just went wild. The fury at Alst claimed many more, and over 170 places across the Low Countries were subjected to violence of some sort. The Spanish had lost control of their own, and even Don John, the victor of Lepanto, was unable to then bring the Dutch to heel. However, over the next few years a split emerged. The seven provinces in the south were persuaded to return to the Spanish fold. The revolts of the army were finally brought under control, and a process of education convinced the majority, relatively peacefully, that they should stay with the Catholic Church, though it has to be said, many simply left. So it was only the northern provinces that in 1579 agreed the Treaty of Utrecht, forming the Union of Utrecht. The United Provinces swore to the Spanish, you don't get me, I'm part of the Union, till the day I die. And they swore to fight what the treaty declared to be tyrannical government and slavery. The treaty also specifically had words about religion, and it declared this, each individual enjoys freedom of religion and no one is persecuted or questioned about his religion. Now, in practice, this did not mean open freedom of worship, the Reformed Church was made the state church and Catholics would need to be discreet about how they went about practising their religion. But, with the exception of Poland, this is the most remarkable example of religious toleration in the 16th century. 
while I'm on the topic, you might like to take out membership of the History of England, which will allow you to listen to my megasode on religious toleration in Europe, where this is discussed in much more depth, showing why intoleration was so widespread, the impact of the religious wars, where and how toleration starts to develop in the Netherlands and England, and how eventually people learn to live together. Just go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and click on Become a Member and pay the poultry fee. You'll also get access to about 36 hours worth of podcast on many English topics and a history of Scotland. It's a barg, I'm sure you'll agree. It's cheap as chips. And that is the end of the party political broadcast. The United Provinces had a most innovative constitutional arrangement. The state's general was composed of the provinces and towns, each led by a figure called the pensionary. To keep things fair and even, they appointed a rotating presidency to the state's general. The president then presided over the meetings of said state's general for a week at a time. As time went by to keep things fair and even but also nimble, the pensioners started acting as an executive committee. Initially, however, the idea was not to form a republic. In fact, in political and social terms, this was not a rebellion of social and political radicals. So, although the formal declaration of independence in 1581 deposed Philip II as their king, they were all for finding a new, nice and traditional monarch to top off the top of their pyramid. Sadly, they couldn't find one, and several were tried, including Elizabeth I of England. In 1584, William II was assassinated, and his son Maurice assumed leadership, but monarch there would be none. The final act, in a sense although not the end of the struggle, which would not finally come until the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, was the appointment of the Duke of Parma to the Regency of the Netherlands by Philip II. Over three years, Parma carried out over 30 sieges with an army of over 60,000 men, and he re-established Spanish control over much territory, especially in the south, of course. It would be this Duke of Parma that would attempt to meet the Armada in 1588 to remove Elizabeth from the throne of England. Despite his military successes, effectively the northern provinces remained independent, while the southern remained integrated into the Spanish Empire, as we said, and 150,000 Protestants would leave and travel to enjoy the toleration in the north. For the last three years of his life, Philip II was strapped into a specially constructed chair that kept him almost motionless, as he suffered from gout and bouts of fever caused by malaria. On the 13th of September 1598, he finally died at the Palace of Escorial at the age of 71. It didn't take long, a matter of months, for a wave of criticism from his subjects and the church for which he'd fought so hard to sweep over his reputation. Along with the vociferous, hysterical and reasonably justified fear and hatred of the Protestants of England and the Netherlands, so it has been ever since. Philip II really needed a promotional agent. Now, he must take some blame for the atrocities committed in his name and the financial chaos caused by his relentless and overwhelming wars. But he was a hard-working, pious, conscientious man who carried out the obligations he deeply believed he inherited with his title. And at Lepanto, for example, can be credited with playing a major part in turning back the Ottoman tide. He faced an impossible task with an empire of staggering complexity and he fought forces of economic, social and religious change that would have defeated anybody, and he remained determined to the end. It is worth noting that he shared some of that pragmatism about religion that his father Charles V had, so while he was in England, 
he appears to have been opposed to the hardline approach Mary favoured towards persecution. He was, in short, nothing more or less than a man of his time. He doesn't deserve to be treated as the kind of pantomime villain he often is portrayed as. That, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of this series of three episodes on 16th century Europe. There is an awful lot there, but I hope it gives you both a bunch of great stories and a framework for the English stories we'll be hearing over the next few months and years and all the rest of it. It is a century of enormous change, is it not? And of quite extraordinary and hideous levels of conflict. I mean, have you ever heard anything like it? Religious mayhem, quite extraordinary persecution along with it, in the most painful way, social and economic dislocation, colonisation and the invention and growth of the Atlantic slave trade. But it's also a century of expansion, of growth, in population, economy, technology, of the idea in just a few corners of Europe that maybe toleration will be the only way forward of the growth of nationhood and the state, which will both be boon and curse. So next week, we're back to the knitting, as it were. A new monarch will be riding into town. Meanwhile, don't forget to check out History in Technicolor and come and join us on Facebook. By the way, as far as commenting on the website is concerned, please note, I read and reply every comment. Because I get so much automated spam, I have to leave it so that I have to approve each comment before it appears so you don't see it immediately. But fear not, they all get read responded to and approved so that they're there. One last thing, next weekend while you're listening to The Boy King, I will be walking for charity with Davy and Dizzy. So can I take this moment to thank everyone who donated? I'm so sorry if I've missed anyone, but our very grateful thanks to Rowena and Graham, of course, Finn, Roy, Mary, Ben, Daniel, Chris, several anonymouses, Anna, Thomas, Craig, John, William, Andy, David, Tim, Michael, Michelle, Ambrose, Mandy, Ed and Carrie, Joel, Sophie, Katie, Peter, Dave, David, Frederick, Richard, Ray, Nicholas, Luke, Frank and Amanda. Some of you donated twice, some of you even three times. Thank you so much. You've all been incredibly generous. That's it, everyone. Good luck, everybody, and have a great week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.